0: We have a problem every year around MLK Day because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for some reason, has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. He had the audacity to send out Hi,
1: and welcome to another edition of On Another Level. I'm your host and the producer, Sharon Eaton Hinton. I have, as always, amazing guests here that hopefully bring your consciousness and your information to another level so that you do something. Like, this is not entertainment television. Hopefully, we're entertaining and you don't change the channel. And we're not going to have phone calls tonight because my guests are just amazing. So, I want you to get a pen, get a paper. Get a pencil and take down notes. We will have um, for more information kind of thing happening. And my guess, well, you just have to come back right after this, don't go anywhere. This is about HEAL, health, equity, advocacy, and leadership on another level.
0: There's a tremendous gap in, in access, information, and resources that exist in this country. There's a 30, 40% you know, greater incidence of, of heart attack, 400% higher incidence of, of death from stroke for black and brown folks. And we
2: can apply kind of fancy language, academic language to it, but it's about oppression.
0: It's about the power dynamics in our society. Well With All is a health and wellness consumer products company. We're going to take 20% of the profits and pour it into health equity for Black, brown, and underserved communities. So we want to create as many spaces um,
3: as we can that allow us to pour into our young people. And what we have now is a blueprint
2: for how other organizations can do that. The Heal Academy. This is a
0: six-week academy. We're investing in the lives of Black and brown youth.
2: They can find a real community, right? They can connect with other young people, like-minded.
3: So that when you think about your well-being, you think about your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness.
2: We can give them the skills and knowledge to help them feel empowered. I think
0: that health equity means justice. Starting on a clean slate. Looking at every individual person. Giving everybody the right resources they need. Everyone getting the help they deserve. We're starting one community at a time. We're starting one person at a time. This is why Well With All exists.
1: HEAL, and you're gonna learn all about HEAL, Health, Equity, Advocacy, and Leadership Academy. Is it an academy? Yep. It's an academy. So that was my guest, Michael Holliday, who is the lead instructor at HEAL, and also my other guest, who I didn't know I know her. I knew <laughs> her, like I've known her forever, Dr. Gail. Well, Queen, can I call you Queen Gail? I'll take that, too. Queen Gail. Okay. Crum Swaby, She's the president at New Generations Consultants and Associates. And she's an associate professor at Springfield College, where I I used to teach for over two decades. Good God. Boston is a big town. And if you're doing anything Mm -hmm. here, you're going to find wonderful and fantastic people. And I like my people, people of color. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Um,
1: I, I, you know, I just want to jump into it. Michael and I talked on the phone. (laughs) We could talk a dog off a meat wagon, I swear. <laughs> and so I said, well, the show is an hour. We've already talked for an hour and a half. Mm. But so we want to get into heal. We want to get into what you do in terms of healing, doctor. Uh, so I just, just say Dr. Swaby or the whole?
3: You can just say Gail. Dr. Gail is <laughs> fine or Gail. I'll take that. All take Queen Gail, like you said I earlier. I like Queen.
1: All right. King Gail <laughs> Crumb Swaby. Ooh. It's got a ring to it. You know? So that means you must be a king. King holiday. Yes.
3: Ooh, even that got a ring I
1: could, to I, it. Ooh, we just worked that one. We're going to do that one. That's me. So <laughs> so I want to learn about what you actually do. Now, Michael, you and I met um, Divine Meeting in the doorway to the Dimmick Center. Yep. And you had a book that I was looking at that you gave me. Thank you, and uh, (laughs) thank you very much. And I did read it, it's an elementary book, but you and I connected around the recent um, Pathways to Reentry conference that was held at Northeastern University between the Office of Returning Citizens and Northeastern University College of Criminal Justice. And uh, so, but the work that you do is actually, the young people, thank you, by the way, and I will tell you again, his young people that came to volunteer were absolutely fantastic. teenagers wonderful and they came and you volunteered these young people and they stayed the whole day and they did a wonderful job um, and then you and I have been talking about the work that you're doing with the young people and so we want to later on in the show talk about the summer program that's coming up but I also want to talk to you and I'm gonna get to you dr. Dr. Swaby because the work that you're doing on the eve of or the cusp of because we're not on the eve of a couple of holidays you've got Thanksgiving the Native American me says thanks taking mm-hmm. <laughs> and we celebrate the day of mourning on Thursday in Plymouth. Then you've got Christmas. Then you've got New Year's. All these high pressure holidays that force people to be in situations around people that they probably don't talk to, can't stand, um, along with the loving people. And so you've got all these pressures in the middle of post pandemic, which is still kind of not post pandemic. And also having uh, the pressure of money presence or for food buying food in a population we're talking about people of color and and low lower income people being forced to put on a face and put on um, a presentation or or be in spaces where they're even pressed even more so um, food housing I mean if you've met if you've lost people right before the holidays and all these other things on top of the trauma and mental health issues that black folks, black people already have. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about you because you're a teacher. We're all teachers. We're all professors and stuff here. We're all teachers. What brought you to this work? You and I talked about it, but I want to know about both of you. What brought you to this work and why do you stay here? Why is it important?
2: Got you. Um, So honestly, my grandmother, like, I hope she's watching right now because she didn't expect me to say it, but my grandmother. um, Growing up, I was raised by my grandparents. Uh, Both of my parents had trouble with substance abuse and other mental health issues. And I grew up silent. Mm. I grew up silent. Like, literally I would watch what was going on around me and I would just try to make sense of it. But as I got older and older, the person who made sense of it for me was my grandmother. Uh, And ever since, she pushed me to go to college back when I was 18. I just went all the way up from there. Um, I went to Hamilton College. I learned more about black history um, because as you know, public school doesn't do a great job oh my. of teaching us our history. But I went to school and I learned more about black history. And then after that, I learned policy was my way. Um, and after I learned that, immediately I went to grad school uh, at NYU and learned educational leadership, politics, and advocacy. And I focused on education policy. And everything I wanted to do there was support young black boys, straight up. I wanted to support people who look like me, who may have gone through what I've gone through, or people who grew up silent, but Mm. like understood the struggle.
1: Silent, talk a little bit more about the silence as a black male.
2: I didn't really get too many options or opportunities to do exactly what I wanted to do growing up. It was always dictated by what we were going through, the circumstances that we had. And my grandmother was a preacher Mm. my whole childhood. And watching her, she probably never thought I actually paid attention, but I did. All she did was encourage. All she did was make people believe that through prayer, anything can happen. And that is exactly what we lived on in our household was prayer. Um, And everything I learned from her really just encouraged me to want to make a change. Mm. I didn't know how big it could be. I didn't know where I could do it, but I knew I wanted to do it. Mm. And then you go to these small arts colleges and they make you believe you can change the world. And I ran with it literally. Um, so after that, and after going to grad school, my focus then switched to getting into educational spaces in the community and just helping people who, may not understand that they need help, who may not know how to speak about their struggle, or just seeing people who aren't seen. Mm. And I made sure that like everybody understood, I'm here for you till the end, it doesn't matter. So within this program, that was my focus, was seeing every single student there. We would stop a whole day of curriculum just to make sure everybody felt heard. And sometimes that was everything anybody needed to learn
1: wow and then the program is called
2: heal health equity advocacy and leadership
1: and what does it do the program itself
2: so it literally builds community health workers but not just any community health workers conscious ones ones who understand mental health ones who know how to look at someone and understand how to listen to them straight up and just hearing people in the community in the video you just watched, we heard so many different statistics about health in Boston. We focused on those same statistics every single day. And I helped people understand that this is systemic. Mm. Racism, racism is important. Mm. And you need to understand it from as young as possible.
1: And it's on purpose. Yes, it You're is. You're not crazy, the circumstances are crazy. You're <clears throat> reacting to a crazy situation. Dr. Gail, Queen Gail, Crump Swaby, yes. my sister from another mister. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Now, you have been doing, well, I, I read the, the bio, which I've known you for a while, but I know all that, right? Yeah. And so you help entrepreneurs. You're also a healer yourself. Yes. You're also yes. Mm-hmm. Um, a teacher, a mm-hmm. professor. And so you're teaching people to do what you do and empowering people to do what you do. How did you come about this work?
3: Oh, long story short. Uh, so I am, um, I'm originally from the Virgin Islands, St. Croix. And that's where I grew up. And um, while I was there, my my focus was to go into business because Mm. that's what my dad wanted me to do. And I was kind of on that path. And I remember in high school, my uh, um, accounting teacher... our our business law teacher decided that she was going to take us to the courthouse to kind of witness a a business law case kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So we all went and we were excited about being in the courthouse. And we walked in there and we were sitting down, we were waiting for everything to start. And the bailiff comes in and he introduces the uh, judge. And then um, as we're sitting there, the judge says, well, now this is a case of, you know, the the Commonwealth of the Virgin Islands versus the Mendez family. And I'm like, hmm, what did this Mendez family do as it relates to business law? So I'm sitting there and I'm kind of waiting. And as I'm sitting there, I'm waiting, and after which the, the defending attorney gets up and he's defending this husband and wife who are sitting there, and they're talking about the fact that these parents were, had physically abused their children. Mm. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, what does this have to do with business Business, law, right? (laughs) Right? So I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And um, then the judge kind of paused for a bit and he says, oh, I just wanted to make note that the kids are here in the courtroom and they're sitting to the back with the social worker. And I've never heard of a social worker before, didn't know what they did. So I looked back and she was playing with these kids and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> and that's all I said to myself. I want to do that. I want to play with kids. Oh, well. And I was on the path of becoming a social worker and working with um, kids. And so I went to, uh, after I graduated high school, I shifted my, my degree in terms of what I wanted to do. Initially, like I said, I wanted to do business. My father was not very happy with that. <laughs> you know, he was like, why would you want to get into a profession? Where you're going to mind other people's business mm-hmm. and my thoughts were hmm, i'm not there to mind other people's business but he wasn't happy with it but i went along with it anyway and continued on that path and um i realized when i got to college um i went to an hbcu in alabama And I realized that when I got there that that's the path I really wanted to stay on just Mm. by taking the first two or three courses because in my freshman year they had you take an introduction to social work class and I was like I really want to do this Mm. and that's what led me on the path of where I wanted what I wanted to do. There were different directions I could go with social work but I wanted to work individually with kids who had been physically abused or sexually abused or um, any kind of abuse, so that was my path. So I, I did that then I went to um, Boston University for my um, MSW and focused on clinical work because I, again, I really wanted to work with children and families mm-hmm. and that was my, my, my goal, that I wanted to stick with that. And so I worked for a while actually before going to get my doctorates and realized that, you know, I really wanted to, to stay working within the community. Mm. And I received a um, grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to work primarily with families of color. And I was like, yes, this is what I need. This is what I needed to do. And um, so that's what really led me to be in this work. And I would never turn back and do anything differently. And I always tell this story, this joke, in terms of, you know, whenever I went back home to visit, and my father would tell folks, because I was the first-generation, you know, college student to go mm-hmm. to college. So he was happy. He was proud. And folks would say, oh, your dad tells us that you're in college and you're studying business. And I'm like, no. No. <laughs> not studying business, I'm studying social work. But they didn't pay any mind with that. And every time I saw someone, oh, your dad says you're studying social work, studying um, business. So after a while, I figured out what to say. Mm. When folks says, your dad says you're studying um, business. I said, yes, I'm in the business of social work. And that took care of it. Right. So I just kind of continued saying that. But I knew that that was my path. I really wanted to stay doing mental health, mm-hmm. clinical work, working with families.
1: Now, here's a question I have for both of you. You came from a country, primarily people of color. Yes. And both of you have experiences in black spaces, HBCUs down south, Massachusetts, Mississippi is up south, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> seriously, how? what is the advantage or disadvantages that you've seen from coming Okay, so I know when I come from Boston and go down to Atlanta or something like that, I feel like I'm home, Mm -hmm. like I feel safer. Although there's some dangerous places in Atlanta amongst our people. Right. But it's just this warmth and this sense of like this is family. Mm -hmm. And then I come back up here, whether it's on the plane or anything, you just feel it. I mean, anybody who comes from another state says the same thing. I mean, Michael Shea, he was a comedian. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, Boston's most racist place. But you can feel it. as a person of color, my daughter and I went to a wedding in Atlanta, and we were like, yeah, black folks live in large. Man, that's your house? You know, this is this is dope. And then so, and, and, and plus it's down south, like, hey, how y'all doing? It'd be like, hey, you know. You come up here, and people are like, and they bumping into you and stuff. <laughs> but we could feel it on the plane. When I went to New Orleans, same thing. Going down to New Orleans, hey, hey, how y'all doing? Come back in here. So I know that there's a difference in spaces. It is definitely a difference in educational spaces. Yeah. Because the majority of, of teachers are white women. The majority of students are not. And then also, I think it's only 4% of psychiatrists are people of color. Psychologists yeah. are people of color. Yeah. What is it like for you understanding your mission clearly and that you want to do it for people of color, knowing that you're like a unicorn, like everybody is yeah. looking for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so how do you, do you approach You'll work differently when you're in those spaces, because at some point, both of you are advocating for the people that are clients or people that are that you're working for or working with. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, how do you because you're working with young people, too. So that's another whole flavor, (laughs) you know, because people have this perception of our our, our kids, the darker they are, the more the system, especially the educational system, will clamp down on them. Um, And statistics show that the disciplinary measures, if you're a darker skinned kid, you're more likely to be suspended. You're more likely to be, um, you know, disciplined, harsher. So how do you how do you approach your um, students and help them to navigate that, knowing the reality of that without trying to crush them? Do you know what I'm saying? Because you've been through it and you know the difference between being down there and being up here. How do you present that, how do you do it? And then how do you present that to your students?
2: So when dealing with them, just personally, I understand that people can be going through so many things that they will never show, they'll never speak about. And a lot of people could never guess. Mm. So when I look at my students, it's not that I expect that there is something going on. Mm. I just make sure I create the space for them to tell me. Honestly, there were a lot of students going through things over the summer, but, you know, kids and, you know, high schoolers, they're going to try to tough it out, be cool, come the next day with a smile on their face or or not. But they Mm -hmm. still won't tell you a lot of the times. One thing I wanted them to understand is you could tell me anything. Mm. I'll tell you everything right back. But you're a mandated reporter, too. I'm a mandated reporter, but that was great while I had Gail right beside <laughs> me, <laughs> because everything that I heard, I went to Gail with literally every day. It was a different report of different things, and I asked Gail, what should we do about this? Mm. And Gail always had the best guidance, but with those students, or just in general with all students, the ones that look like us, I want to make sure that I give them the utmost empathy. Mm. because. I know what it felt like to come up in Boston when it seems like there are no opportunities for you to do well. People are always looking, or even just the system. The system Mm -hmm. doesn't give you many options to be successful. However, I want them to see us. Mm. And that's why we brought so many different, like big names to that program, big black names to that program, for them to see that it's all possible. Mm. everything's possible it's going to be hard that was going to that was the biggest lesson of the summer is none of this was easy not for any of us
1: how many young people did you have
2: i had 20 wow yeah and the ages were so about 14 of them were 10th to 12th grade so 16 to 18 wow And then six of them were 19 to 25. Wow.
1: Yeah. Were they still in high school or were they out of high school?
2: The six that were older were out of high school. We had one who had been in the military. We had four or five that, well, no, we had two that graduated from college and then three who were still in. (sighs)
1: So, (laughs) you know, I... I just was thinking about the times as a teacher and being the only black teacher there and, and my kids looking to me for guidance and dealing with some stuff that's openly racist, like blatantly. Right. Yep. And and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the teachers was teaching um, social studies and said to a class of. There was one white student in there, black and brown students. Um, how did America? We're going to talk about the golden age. How did America gain its wealth and don't say slavery? That's the wrong answer. I'm the teacher sitting in there. I'm trying to get my face like... And it was like all the students, one, two, three, and turned around and looked at me and I had to put the book up. Because I'm sitting there and and it was a a very um, toxic environment. So I'm trying to keep my job Mm. in the middle of um, teaching these kids. And so for me to navigate it, I had to find spaces where they could get to me. But um, didn't seem like a threat to the white teachers and the administrators. Um, and that's another whole story. I'll probably write a book about it and charge thirty four ninety five. But, <laughs> But I remember, and then I remember sitting there in the class, and you know, they had this behavioral system, which was like Machiavellian. It was really crazy.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, the white teacher turned into one of the students saying, fix your face, black male mm. student, fix your face. And I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at her, and it's like, what's wrong with his face? He looks like this all the time but that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and at the drop of a hat, uh, automatic detentions and suspensions and stuff. And I'm like, and then the kids are coming to me, the young people, cause they were teenagers. Um, and they would be mad if I called them kids, um, would tell me what's going on in their house. My father just went to prison mm-hmm. or my mother just had an overdose or, you know, and, and, and so I was teaching eighth grade. So one of the students, um, I think if you you connect with these students, like, you never get rid of them. Mm -hmm. You just don't. Um, I have two students coming over to my house in Thanksgiving who are now 40, but I've known them (laughs) since they were 18. Right? It's like they're family now. But one of them I met on a college campus who had heard about me from other students who were actually assigned to me. And he had a serious traumatic stuff, and his mother tried to commit suicide. And so he's talking to his classmates and they're saying, you need to go see Professor Hinton. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. And I know on that college campus, they did not have you there. But my job is saying, I've got to do something about it and walk them across campus, not knowing if they're going to get the help that they need. Right. And then so the support system that you guys have is is key. It's it's absolutely um, essential. But I've been in spaces where you don't have that, where you can turn around and look at somebody and say, you know, you got my back. What can we do? Bum, bum, bum. But you still have to navigate that and try to keep your job and try mm-hmm. to stay in their presence. I mean, I literally. Mm-hmm. The, so the girls would come up to me. The guys would come up to me because I'm in the hallway and I'm like, hey, come on, man. It's Monday. Mm-hmm. Why you look so mean? Come mm-hmm. on. What's up, Heisman? Come on. Let me see that beautiful black smile. Mm-hmm. Come on. Come on. And so, of course, they want to be around me. And then I said, but you got to get a hall pass, because I'm thinking about the system and how the structure is to try to divide us. And then a white teacher literally told two of these students who were trying to do it, and work in the system, to get a hall pass, oh, she's, she's, you know, I'm not giving you a pass anymore to talk to her. Right? And so... And we talked earlier. I'm going to put this on record that Michael has asked me to help him build his school <clears throat> <Yep. clears throat> because we have to
2: mm-hmm.
1: have these systems that support us as educators because we're getting hit, too. And so how do you show up and be I mean, I lost count of how many times I had to remove myself and go in the bathroom and cry, put back up my makeup and come back out and say hi. So how do you stay healthy? How do you stay healthy? Because basically people are telling you all this stuff
3: mm-hmm. and help me with this. Dr. Gill, Queen Gill. Yeah, so just going back to, uh, you know, something that you talked about with Mike about, you know, the approach. And one of the things is that our approach, my approach or our approach have to be different from the white ideology that I was taught in school. Right. Because within, you know, mental health, psychology many of the things we learn comes from a place of white supremacy, white ideology, colonialism, yep. colonialism all of that. And I had to relearn a lot of things. Um, when I meet with young people, when I meet with their families, my response, my reproach, approach had to be very different from what I learned in the classroom and what I learned in the books. And that's how I my approach to work to teaching now Mm. really is. Because one of the things is that I realize that I have to teach and do my approach from a historical place Mm. rather than, and when I say historical in terms of, you know, how we were treated, um, what we have and had and was taken from us, and how do we go about uh, making sure that we teach our kids and teach our young people that they are kings and queens because they came from kings and queens prior to being you know, transported to this country. I always say that we were displaced, misplaced, and replaced, mm. right? So it's so important for us to make sure that our approach, my approach, is very different when I'm working with families. What do I do to take care of myself? I make sure, I I love to walk in the mornings, so I try to get a walk in every morning. I try to make sure, I love music, I love to dance. My kids say I can't, but I love to dance. Um, I love to move. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah. So, those are ways in which I take care of myself and always pay attention to, you know, if I'm breathing correctly, if I'm doing all the right things. And when I say the right things, I mean the right things for me mm-hmm. because not what works for me is gonna work for someone else. The eating right and just basically eating self-care. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. And more so self-preservation, I mm. call it. You know, How do I preserve you know, my well-being? How do I preserve my mind, my body, my spirit, my heart, all of that? And that's what I teach and also what I encourage my, the young people that I work with to do too as well. So.
1: But how do you do that mm-hmm. if you are, okay, so there's two questions I have. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you have an advantage because you came from a, a country that's majority black? That's the first question. The second one is if you have grown up in, and been in a traumatic dysfunctional environment, how do you know where the balance is? Mm. How, do find, how do you find that? So yeah. there's two things.
3: So in terms of the advantage, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it an advantage. I would basically say that I, I, had, I had an opportunity to see people who look like me in high you know, positions. All my teachers look like me. All my doctors look like me. So is it an advantage? You can say that it is, but was, the ship got mm-hmm. to the... Islands first, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So and there was just most of many of us mm-hmm. there, right, mm-hmm. before the ship moving to this country. So is it an advantage? I wouldn't necessarily say it's an advantage because once we get to this country, that advantage gets mm. turned around. But off- you flipped. still have the
1: foundation.
3: I have absolutely there is that foundation. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that foundation can be, you can be shocked, oh. right? Because the expectation that you have because of where you grew up, knowing that everyone looked like you, every many of the things that you experienced was mm-hmm. very different, mm-hmm. but then you come here and, and is expecting that same kind of treatment, ah, okay, okay. and when it doesn't happen...
1: Then you're, you're an angry black woman. You're an angry black woman. Right? <laughs> Got it. So... Um, yeah. so um, I'm not an angry black woman. I'm actually really ecstatic. I'm excited. There you go. And I know that this is part one. It's going to be part two. Michael and I have already discussed this way before this program (laughs) because there's so much wealth of knowledge and wisdom. And we only have a certain amount of time and we have to take a break. But don't go anywhere because this is more information to bring you to another level because we're on another level. I'm your host, Sharon Hinton. Stay with us.
0: When you look at the historical experience of African Americans in the United States, uh, you have to start with the experience of slavery and the vestiges of slavery in terms of the Trump, the trauma associated with it, and I think that um, you know blacks continue to experience uh, trauma in, in in certain ways, and certainly with respect to. Uh, those who live in urban communities that are uh, sort of uh, infested with drugs or that are particularly violent, those are traumatic situations that they experience on a daily basis. Certainly, uh, as we've seen in, um, in recent events, interactions with the police can be, again, particularly traumatic. So, when you talk about mental illness in the black community, I think you have to begin with the experience of trauma and how trauma continues to abound in um, in their experiences and in their, in their daily lives. I think that what happens for a lot of individuals is that they suffer in silence um, with respect to having a mental illness. And so what I mean by that In the greater society, um, there's certainly a lot of stigma associated with mental illness. Um, It's sort of uh, antithetical to the American ethic, which is to, you know, be strong and courageous, to pull yourself up by the bootstrap, to weather the storm, etc. I think the second part of that, you know, point is what's happening at the community level or the society level. And I think what happens is that within the black community, Um, I think that, again, you know, that ethic uh, about what it means to be strong and courageous um, is particularly pronounced because um, of trying to, you know, combat those forces like discrimination or racism um, and, you know, it just adds to the burden of, you know, sort of what it means to survive. And so then the person who's struggling with the mental illness is perhaps not embraced or. You know, warmly accepted because of their struggles. You know, I remember uh, as a as a as a young person growing up, I used to hear about the person who was quote unquote sent down south. I used to wonder what that meant, and it wasn't until I got older that I became um, you know more knowledgeable of the fact that a per that person was struggling with a mental illness or perhaps substance abuse. From a historical perspective, there's been a lot of emphasis and. The black community, particularly in black families, uh, on keeping your problems close to the vest in the home. You don't share what's going on with outsiders. No one can uh, treat you as best as your family can. You bring all your burdens and your problems to your family. And if you do take it any to any entity outside of your family, it's the black church. The church is really important in the black community. Make no mistake about it; it's uh, a source of, uh, you know, sort of salvation and uh, and healing. And there's the whole collective support uh, from, you know, you get from your fellow churchgoers and that sort of thing. But I think also what has historically happened is that um, the church has been defined as the place to, you know, sort of relieve your symptoms or to address your burdens, and so it stops there. And what I think needs to happen is that, first of all, I think pastors and lay ministers can be more trained uh, in the signs and presentations of uh, mental illness, but I think that the church could be sort of a triage unit, if you will, such that it identifies those who have needs and it's that sort of first step and the sort of entree into care but it shouldn't stop there. I believe that culturally competent care is critical to everything. If patients perceive that providers are inauthentic and do not care about their unique circumstances then they're likely to be turned off. At a baseline providers should understand their the history of their neighborhoods, for example, or the history of the experience of uh, of African Americans and Latinos, uh, such that they can put the clinical presentation into context and understand what unique factors um, are in play with respect to the clinical presentation and how that person is seeking to, you know, survive and live in the world as. African-American or Latino. And so I think that it's the onus is on the provider to understand that context and to understand what it means. Uh,
1: for that. So we cut him off a little bit early, but that's okay. We're back and hopefully you stayed with us and you watched that clip. For those of you who go to church, mm-hmm, let me tell you, and there's an earlier statement that Michael made about being silent, and uh, don't be talking about this stuff, this family business, keep it in the family. Well, uh, domestic violence, mm. sexual abuse, rape, incest, <sighs> substance abuse, all this stuff, all the poisons, the stuff that's designed to kill us, if we keep it inside there, we'll never get the help that we need. And then this particular speaker <laughs> talked about um, bringing it to the Lord and bringing it to Jesus. And, and we were talking during the clip, it's like, why can't you go and bring Jesus with you? Or why can't you do both? And so, but there is this, um, and, and that clip talked about the reluctance that black people in particular have in terms of going to mental health. And so then we have to still talk about the history. This country has a horrible history in terms of using us as guinea pigs. Um, most people don't know the first gynecologist um, was experimenting on black women with no anesthesia, yeah. you know, with no anesthesia, and they were the substitutes for the white women, right? They would just send, oh, you want to do that? Just send my slave. And so he's dissecting people, and he's, you know, drilling holes in babies' heads and crap like that. And so people don't know that when they look at these statues and all these accolades of this, you know, the father of this or that, or the mother of this or that. Um, so black people, you know, and then we talk about the Tuskegee mm-hmm. uh, syphilis experiments, and then the the, uh, history of the penal system, uh, um, sterilizing black and brown women and Native American women. I mean, so we got receipts in terms of why we don't distrust people. And that also came into play during COVID when a lot of black people was like, no, you ain't gonna be experimenting on me. Let me find out what's gonna do. And people are still not vaccinating. By the way, COVID is still out there and it's still killing people. So that being said, um, how do we, change the mindset. Um, Full disclosure, I see a therapist. I was talking to my therapist today um, because I almost died like about nine months ago. Mm. Literally, I was in the hospital and they said to me, what happens if you die? And that's, I wish I could say that's the first time that that happened, but it wasn't because I'd had um, about 13 years ago, three strokes. And so as, as lively and as, you know, I am now, Um, during a, during a winter break, um, and I was getting my third master's degree in public health on break within an hour and a half. I was in the hospital. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. And that like shut it down, you know? So it was like me and God, like, what's up? Why did this happen? Um, Knowing, you know, the feedback and biofeedback and I'm stressed and all this other stuff, but still as a black woman, I got to do it. This is what we do. We suck it up. We're silent. And we 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 applaud people. Oh, they never complain. Duh. They never we never knew. Right. And then, oh, they seem so happy. And then it's a suicide or attempted suicide. Oh. And then, you know, the homicides and stuff, this anger that is causing us to take it out on the most vulnerable people, either our kids or our spouses or our partners or our neighbors and stuff. And so we see what's happening because people can't handle what's happening in their head. And then there are studies that say that the trauma of slavery and everything actually has come down through our blood and changed our DNA. And so how do you navigate that when the person who is your mom, who there's songs, I always love my mother, but your mother's the, the, the source of your trauma or your father is, or the lack of that. So um, going into this holiday season and understanding um, some of the situations that people are dealing with that they're not talking about, as a black male, Michael, what do you do to self-care? And what are some of the tips that you would give to other black males to not explode or implode in the middle of dealing with some hellacious situations?
2: That's a great question. I I thought so. That's why I (laughs) asked you. I honestly um, used to deal with a lot before, maybe about two years ago, Um, because I knew all the knowledge. I knew everything. I knew to go see a therapist. I even saw my first therapist at 23. Mm. But I denied it all because I needed to be resilient and I was in survival mode and needed to get money and careers and go up. But about a year and a half ago, I just, I stepped on the scale and I was like, I have never weighed this much in my life. I was stressed out at the moment and I needed to make a change. And immediately I was like, all right, I'm gonna pick up something that I might see as hard to do or I was afraid to do before, but I was, I'm just gonna start jogging. And I started it off with like a mile a day and I just kept going up. And first I was doing it just to see how far I could go and how much I could progress. And then after about a half a year, I saw I lost 30 pounds and I was like, all right. Wow. I saw that I was breathing better, all the different things. Uh, so you had a physical manifestation, but you
1: made the mental decision to make a change. Yep. So is that what you're telling people to do? Just recognize that you're not where you need to be? Like this. So disease is lack of ease, dis ease, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So how do you, because you get so used to, pushing forward. I know <laughs> the stroke thing, I mean, that stopped me dead in my tracks. But up until then, I felt like, well, this is what I have to do. Who else is gonna do it but me? It's not gonna get done unless I do it. I've been more tired at other times. I've been in pain more times. So I, if I got through that, I can get through this. How do you know that that's not where you need to be? Because we've become so used to, and so, so used to discomfort, disease, pain. How do you recognize that that's not where you need to be?
2: So I'll speak in two different groups. There's one group that knows. They know that they need to make a change in their life. They know how to make the change. And they know the resources, but they don't do it because of whatever stigmas, however they grew up, whatever's going on in their community or around them. And then they're forced to make those changes. And what I'll say to those people are just make the change. Mm. Just make the change, start now, because when you make that change, everything else will start becoming easier, better, more clear. There are other people who just don't have the knowledge, Mm. who are bogged down by all the systems that are around them. And maybe they just don't see a way out. And that's real, because I know a lot of different people who are like that. Um, For those folk, keep pushing, but also lean on other people. Lean on me. Honestly, lean on people who are telling you that they're there to help and be honest. Like, that is one lesson that I've given to a lot of people around me lately is like, don't lie to yourself. Because mm. we do that so often. Men do that a lot.
1: So <laughs> oh, I can often. handle
2: it. Sucking it up. Just so that we can move forward or support this or support that, whether it be support your family or support the habits.
1: And then we see the increase of drug abuse and substance abuse because they're trying to deaden it, self-medicate, yep. which happens a lot during the holidays and it's acceptable because everybody's drinking, yep. everybody's smoking.
2: Don't lie to yourself. I, like I, I really feel like people know what that means when they tell themselves that, don't lie to yourself. You know the truth. Mm. And if you don't know the truth, either something in front of you or physically is gonna show you the truth sooner or later and make those changes and not just make the changes like suck your teeth, drag your feet, make the changes and know that they're gonna help you change your own situation. I didn't think like becoming a jogger was gonna solve anything, but it did. Mm. Did it physically solve things? Yes, like Mm. my body is completely healthier now, but I didn't know that like those 30 minute, hour and a half runs, all the different things, all the different time running those were meditation Mm. literally it's just me the road and god literally you're breathing you're focusing on your breathing if you have music you're focusing on that music but you're in your brain you're in that space Mm. and whether it be prayer like i like to pray all the time i told you my grandmother really embed that within me and even when i'm running i pray i pray to go longer i pray for everyone around me all the different things but like When you're making that change, if it's a conscious change, Mm -hmm. your brain will definitely be impacted.
1: Mm. So I remember, well, I had to make a change. Right. I was in rehab for four and a half months. And so um, (laughs) depending on total strangers for my life. Like I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I couldn't move. If somebody didn't come to change the bedpan, I was laying there like I, I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't communicate to someone that they were hurting me. And so it was me and God. That was it, that period. You know. And so I had to make changes. But I also remember being severely depressed at one point because it was taking so long. Because the, the first stroke I recovered from pretty much in 10 days, and they were like, oh, you know, I'm going to send her home. And then boom, boom, two more happened. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm in the hospital and everything is happening. Like, why is this happening? To this day, they still haven't told me why it happened, or to keep it happening again. And so eight months ago, nine months ago, when um, I went in the hospital for something else which by the way they still didn't tell me but you can like you said you can kind of tell but then you want to push forward because maybe you don't feel like you have somebody else or you're the person everybody else goes to that's the other thing you're the person everybody else goes to and so they think oh she'll be fine she went through that she'll be fine and so you don't really have the people to lean on and I'll say with the exercising Um, they sent me home in a wheelchair and I was still half paralyzed, but there were free classes at the Roxbury Library, um, adaptive yoga and adaptive Tai Chi. And I literally was in the wheelchair learning how to do Tai Chi and yoga. So Dr. Swaby, what are your tips? We've got about nine minutes, 10 minutes facing this. I told you it's going to be part two. Um, For people to look out for during the holiday season or any season to um, be aware of when
3: things are not right? And
1: let's start with that.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I I often say if you know that, you know, you have family members or friends who would normally do their behaviors or things that they would normally do that would bring bring them to life, so to speak, and you notice that there's a shift, that something different is happening, you know, I would say, call, Call them Check on in it. with them. Right. Check in with them on it, right? So, you know, and it could be something as simple as, you know, I know you normally make the sweet potato pie, but you said you're not going to make it this year.
1: What's that? Oh, it could be something innocuous like that. Yeah,
3: maybe. absolutely, something like that, you know. Or they normally do a particular thing, but they're not doing it anymore. You know, well, ask them about that. You know, because it could be that they might be getting depressed. It could be there's something else that's going on for them. So those are those are things to look out for. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, you know, going back to this word resilience, sometimes we 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 misinterpret what it means. Mm. Right. We think that resilience means that we are supposed to hold things in and pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and just keep going and don't let anything stop us. But you can't have resilience if you're not able to ask for the help that you need while being resilient.
1: Mm. Hold right. on, stop right there. We got four minutes. What does that look like? Because, and I'm thinking about you know people. Our people are so disconnected, and our mm-hmm. families are so fragmented. And I'm thinking there may be someone that says, "Well, I ask for help." And I'm thinking about when people go through trauma, and there are people that come to, "Oh, if you need something, come." Come ask me, and then you come ask me. Oh, can we got to do this right now? Like we come on, can we? Right. So that resilience, I think we learned through slavery because we absolutely, had to do it. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. But then, yes, yes. so
1: how do you use it, but not be crushed by it?
3: Hmm. Ex- excellent question.
1: I thought so. so. That's why I asked. So, it. yeah. So,
3: so. <laughs> so part of that, and I think Mike said it, is is knowing yourself and knowing the people who are going to be there for you. Mm. Sometimes we have support systems that are not really supportive. Right. Right? Or we have tribes that are not very good. They're at war. They're at war. Absolutely. And I often say, you know, pay attention to, you know, when you're in the presence of someone and you're feeling some sense of, you know, disruption within your system, within Mm. your body, that might be telling you this is not the person you want to be connected with. Mm. Don't ignore it. Check your circle. Check Mm. your circle, check yourself, check your internal feelings, what's going on for you, because that can be an indication that whenever you're in the space surrounded by this person, Mm -hmm. things happen and not good things.
1: So in the four minutes we have left, three minutes we have left, how does someone get in touch with you in the Heal program?
2: Well, you can email me straight up. Can I say it? Yes. My email is M-H-O-L-L-I-D-A-Y-0-4 at gmail.com. We're actually going to start our recruitment process again in like a month or two. Um, and we do that specifically for a few reasons. We do it late in the year because there's a lot of people or high school specifically the big and um, prestigious programs like to get their students early on mm. in the year. Yeah. And then that leaves a lot of people thinking, oh, there's no opportunities for me. Mm-hmm. And those are the people we want.
1: And how does someone get in touch with you? Miss, the queen unicorn right here. Everybody looking <laughs> for a black psychologist, a black psychiatrist. Yeah. How do they get a hold of you?
3: Yeah, so it's, it's, it's um, at New Gen Consults. That's N-E-W-G-E-N-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-S consults at gmail.com now they should contact
1: okay. you if they're looking for a network are you hooked up with a network of
3: I am hooked hooked up with a network so if someone is looking for a therapist I can definitely help them get um, connected and there's so many other um, you know websites out there they can go through pure spark they can go through inner psych they can find um, therapists Pure spark is named nice deep yes mm-hmm. absolutely so um, and I'm connected to to both of those. Um, so, yes, if someone you know is looking for a therapist, I can definitely you know connect them to someone or connect them to an organization that might be taking. Now, are you taking um, clients and patients? Not at this present moment. I am actually filled. Yes. <sighs> yes. See, that's the problem, right? Uh.
1: Um,
2: the best ones.
1: Thank you both for coming here today. Um, I feel like we, I know we just scratched the surface and we need to get deeper. And so I'm going to ask you to come back. I also have a podcast that's called Black Teachers Matter, and that's on WBCA radio. <laughs> so on Podbean and on Spotify and a couple of other platforms, which I never remember, 102.9 FM. Um, my name is Sharon Henson. I want to thank you, my ghost, my guest hosts, um, Actually, yeah, I feel like you're my guest host, not just my guest, because we're actually bringing it to the table. Uh, Michael Holiday, doctor. I'm going calling you Dr. Michael Holiday. I don't know there if that's you in go. your future, but I'm going to prophesy <laughs> that. I'm going to speak that into existence. And you're already a doctor. Uh, but so that's why you're the queen. I'll take that. Queen Gail Sway. Yes. Crump Swaby. Um, I appreciate you being here in this space. I appreciate you being here in this space. In this holiday, look at your breathing. Check your circle. See how you feel. Are you talking to somebody and all of a sudden you're tense? Mm-hmm. You may have to go get a massage <laughs> or a cup of tea. But take care of yourselves and each other and hope to see you back next time on another level. God bless you and God bless you.
3: Thank you.
0: with, anything in. One of the biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. Here the audacity out a the march has begun Every day we rise
1: like the sun We fight till the battle is won Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, cause we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running It's time for some action now Historical progression Generations march in succession Through 400 years Hate, blood, sweat, and tears And counting The resistance is mounting not Throw
0: your hands in the air Just like this We the are the generation of-